Is your money working as hard as it could be for your future? A decade ago, Robinhood changed the investment landscape when they pioneered commission-free stock trading. Today, they continue to offer innovative products to help users build a better financial future, like IRAs, ETFs, options for qualified traders, and much more. Take control of your financial future with Robinhood. Download the app or visit Robinhood.com to learn more. That's Robinhood.com. Disclosures. Investing involves risk. Other fees may apply. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIP. PC is a registered broker dealer. Good morning, Brew Daily Show. I am Neil Fryman. And I'm Toby Howell. Happy Friday. Thank you. I used to cringe when I would say that, but you it just is gotta happy own Friday. it. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm 31 now. I'm just gonna <laughs> getting into my Gen X stage. Uh, every Friday, we do this tradition. Uh, fast week, slow week. So, Toby, fast week or slow week? Okay, this was definitely a slow week for me, and I have a lot of feelings about this. One, because I was out on Friday of last week, so it was a three-day weekend for me. So, anytime you come back after a three-day weekend, it feels slow. And then also, daylight savings still. Waking up at, at 6 a.m. and it being pitch blackout, I hate it. It makes the week feel long. What about you? All right. For me, uh, fast week, uh, it's, I, I have a feeling I'm just going to be 99% fast week with the, with the job as a newsletter writer and podcast host. You're just following the news. Uh, and this week was just so heavy with big news. We had Credit Suisse on Monday, Google released Bard, Fed rate hike, TikTok testimony that we'll talk about today. We did just, talk about a lot this <laughs> Just week. nonstop. So just to recap, you're one and one fast week, slow week. I'm two and oh in favor of fast week. Uh, we, will keep be a doing, tally. We will keep a tally. All right. Uh, what are we going to talk about today? Uh, a short seller is going after Jack Dorsey, the beard himself. Uh, Apple heard the siren call of Nicole Kidman <laughs> and the HBO and Netflix effect on travel. We'll talk about what that is. Uh, but first, we mentioned it a little earlier. TikTok CEO Shozi Chu testified before Congress yesterday and narrator voice. It did not go well for him. Politicians from both sides of the aisle filleted him about the app's ties to China, saying that there were not enough safeguards to protect American user data from being swiped by the Chinese government. So I have a few takeaways, so I'm just going to rattle them off, and then you can, uh, I'd love to hear yours. Rattle away. I'm going to rattle. So the first is that Chu was just not super definitive with his answers. He was asked yes or no a couple times, and he didn't say yes or no, which kind of rattled lawmakers. One of the questions was, he was asked whether Chinese employees of ByteDance, which is TikTok's parent company, could access US user data. And he said, I have seen no evidence of that. And you know, when maybe a no would have been right. good. But lawmakers reminded him of that he was under oath uh, the entire time, so that kind of maybe uh, made him a little nervous. And then another representative asked whether ByteDance had spied on American citizens, and he responded, I don't think that spying is the right way to describe it. <laughs> it's so, it, it was not, it, yeah, you're right. He did not, I, I don't want to cut you off. Do you have one more No, no, away? go ahead, okay, I'm yeah. done. Yeah, I have never seen this amount of vitriol from a congressional hearing. Honestly, being at the brew for a couple of years, I've watched a fair amount yeah. of congressional hearings at this point, and from both sides of the aisle, he was taking punches. I saw one tweet from Mike Solana, who's a GP at Founders Run, that was saying, Republicans think this app, referring to TikTok, is dangerous because it's controlled by the CCP, while Democrats think this app is dangerous because it's an app. Kind of playing <laughs> on the idea that this huge big tech, anti-big uh, anti tech sentiment. And I, 
also can't believe that we are now going to see this massive divide between what lawmakers are pushing for and what the voters actually may want. Because one thing that uh, Chu was trying to play up was the fact that there's 150 Americans on TikTok. 150 million. 150 million. Yeah. 150 million <laughs> Americans within our square mile radius. Right. 150 million Americans that are on TikTok and love TikTok. And then you have the constituents that actually uh, are the people who represent them saying, no, we want to ban it. So there's this huge gulf between, yeah, kind of the masses and what the politicians want. Okay, but that 150 million, I thought was a, is, was a really interesting point because he touted it as a, about how many Americans love TikTok and are on TikTok. And they use that point, the lawmakers use that point against them. They're like, you are bragging about, you know, the fact that you have 150 million uh, users on your app. Well, to us, that just shows how big of a problem this right. is, that 45% of the entire population could have their data swiped by the Chinese government. So I don't know if that was a, you know, he thought he was kind of dunking on yeah. everyone and then they kind of dunked right. him back. Speaking of double-edged swords, one of his big dunks uh, was saying that we're talking about my uh, user data security. What about Facebook's and what about uh, the Cambridge Analytica sc scandal? They're not good with data. So we have a little soundbite from the hearing where he brings up Facebook. I don't think ownership is the issue here. With a lot of respect, American social companies don't have a good track record with data privacy and user security. I mean, look at Facebook and Cambridge Analytica. Okay. See, you didn't think this was a good idea to bring up, did you? I think you? it was fine, but anytime you're kind of deflecting and right. bringing up everyone else, it's kind of a sign that you're losing. Yeah, I could see it too. It, it did he get did a little first kind of thing. It, I don't know. It, it got really a, well. a little bit of a laugh or a little bit of a grumble. We cut it off before that, but everyone in the room was kind of like, well, he kind of has a point, right? So I do think that the user data security problem, it, obviously it's heightened because it's, it's China in this case, but it has been a problem in all social media apps. So Yeah, and Mark Zuckerberg was in front of the same uh, congressional hearing. So I guess what's the big picture here? <laughs> Mine is that you know, TikTok is probably going to get banned. You think? Oh yeah, I was I was going to ask. I thought <laughs> you were going to from this. I think yeah, so. Okay. Uh, it was just nonstop firing on all cylinders against this dude, uh, Dan Ives, who's this prominent tech analyst, called it a disaster of epic proportions, and essentially told everyone to go buy up Meta and Snapchat yeah, stock. I that's also my takeaway. I do think it's going to get banned too, which is just crazy to think about that. 150 million Americans. There, there is an alternative, and that is if ByteDance, the Chinese company, sells its 20% stake in uh, TikTok, but seems like China is not going to play ball with that. Um, they were firmly against this and have been kind of firing bullets at the United States over TikTok. So it's turned gotcha. to this geopolitical fracas. But I guess next year at this time, I, I don't think TikTok will be around in the U.S. Good for productivity, baby. Uh, I'm all for good it. Good for Instagram Reels. Yeah, that's what I have exactly. to say. Exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll keep a close eye on that. Obviously, that situation is going to keep developing. Um, but let's move on to the next story. We've talked TikTok. Now let's Let's talk Block. Very proud of that one. <laughs> so Block got Hindenburg yesterday. And so that's kind of a wild sentence for most people. So I'm going to break it down for you guys. So first and foremost, Block, formerly known as Square, is the other company that Twitter founder Jack Dorsey started. 
it's a payments company that owns the popular Venmo alternative cash app, which a lot of people know and love. Hindenburg, on the other hand, is basically the grim reaper of Wall Street. It's this small research firm that dives into companies it feels like is engaging in nefarious corporate practices. And then it also takes a short position in those companies, so it profits if the stock falls. Previous examples of Hindenburg at work is they took down the EV truck maker Nikola uh, a couple years ago, which I'm sure people remember. Uh, their founder, Trevor Milton, was actually found guilty of fraud. And then more recently, they took down the Adani Group from India, which lost $135 billion in market cap due to one of Hindenburg's reports. So taking us back to yesterday, Hindenburg dropped a, a report exposing Block, but honestly, mostly exposing Cash App. So the key allegations against Cash App were, is that Cash App's inflating user numbers by allowing people to start multiple accounts. So one of the funniest parts is Hindenburg researchers were actually able to apply for a Cash App debit card under the name Donald J. Trump, and they received yeah. it. Um, and then they also highlighted how much Cash App's being used for illegal activities like money laundering. The f another funny part was they created this supercut of all the uh, hip hop and rap songs that mention Cash App and mention Cash App not necessarily in a favorable way, using it for illegal activities. So yeah, a wild thread that stock stock was down 14% in reaction to it. People take these things very seriously. Neil, what do you think about Hindenburg going after Block? Uh, yeah, it definitely puts Jack Dorsey in the hot seat. Uh, I think he lost over $500 million of his net worth. Investors, it, Hindenburg seems like it has a pretty decent reputation of being, you know, they build themselves as investigative reporters, essentially, and somehow they just make money. Right. Uh, not somehow, that, you know, they dig up dirt and then they make money off the dirt that they throw. So. Yeah, they come with the receipts. That's right. the big thing Hindenburg does, is that they will get really, really deep into the weeds um, and come up with a lot of specific things. And so it puts the companies on the the burden of proof is then back on the companies, where they have to then go through systematically and disprove everything Hindenburg said. And honestly, Block didn't really do that. They issued the classic corporate statement, like it was riddled with inaccuracies, right. like we don't think this report is true. But they really didn't refute any of the claims in it. So Block is on the chopping block right now. <laughs> I don't know, teetering on the edge. A lot of people think that short. I mean, there's this wider ethical discussion around the ethics of short selling and whether it should be legal or not. And if you go back to the meme stock craze of early 2021, this there was a revolt against short sellers of GameStop. Yeah, That was Melvin Capital who had shorted GameStop, and the, all the Redditors wanted to squeeze them and make them lose a lot of money. And there was this giant you know, popular anti-short seller sentiment. So I am a little curious how Hindenburg kind of has distanced itself from the overall bad attitude that or bad reputation that short sellers have. I just think they have yet to be wrong yeah. so far. Everything that they've said, while not maybe a hundred percent true, was directionally correct in these companies that they target. That's another big reason why this is such a big deal. Is that Jack Dorsey and Block is probably the, especially Cash App, is probably a company that people recognize, name recognize the most. So Adani Group, maybe you hadn't really heard of it. Nikola was pretty small still, but Cash App is something that millions of people use. So this might be the one that kind of 
overtakes Hindenburg in mainstream in a way. So it's a it's a big deal. Yeah, Hindenburg uh, told me so. I, I'm a, I'm a Venmo guy personally. <laughs> there you go. I never I never use Cash App for this particular reason. I knew it was rife with fraud. And when you see Venmo and people are making snowflakes and <laughs> different leaves, I, I know what that is. Yeah. Um, okay, let's move to the movies. So according to a Bloomberg report yesterday that had everyone talking, uh, Apple plans to spend one billion dollars each year to produce original films that will have wide theatrical releases that will run for at least a month. The move is intended, in my view, to essentially work as top-of-funnel marketing for its streaming service, Apple TV+, which is how the company actually makes money, to get people thinking about Apple as like a serious player in the movie industry. And it's also meant to help it land bigger projects and better talent. There are some directors out there... <coughs> Christopher Nolan, uh, who don't like streaming and kind of want their movies to be seen on the big screen and a bunch of actors as well. Yeah, I'm actually really, really excited for this. Uh, I love hearing about the projects they have planned. So they have a thriller starring Dua Lipa and Henry Cavill, which I'm very pumped for. Okay. Ridley Scott is... Oh, you're not pumped for that? Sure. That, that seems like a <laughs> dynamic duo. Ridley Scott is directing a Napoleon historical drama starring Joaquin Phoenix, which sounds awesome. And then there's a Scorsese film with Leonardo DiCaprio. It's I, I think Apple is going to crush this. Apple, it, it sounds weird on the surface. Like, why is Apple devoting $1 billion to the movies? But Apple's probably the best storytelling company that we've had in the last generation, just from Hot the way day. it markets its products. The, remember, like, the uh, Apple versus PC ads, the 1984 commercial? Apple is really good at telling stories and has been throughout its history. So I can totally see how this fits in with its ethos. <laughs> Okay, but that might be romanticizing that's it. Marketing department, yeah. they're just hiring Martin Scorsese to tell stories. So I don't know if the Apple marketing department is gonna go and be like, Martin, we you, you gotta like put yourself up against a PC and think different here. <laughs> hey, I'm telling you, they people associate Apple with storytelling these days, and this just continues that. Another big winner from this too, not a huge winner, but theater. I think big. I think the biggest winner. Right, theater companies, uh, their stocks performed well in reaction to the news. Yeah, AMC was up over five. IMAX was up 5% and Cinemark was up almost 9%. So it's clearly a reaction to, yeah, when you have one of the bigger players in the space is saying, we're going all in on theaters, theaters are going to profit. I mean, the fact that these tech companies, Amazon is also releasing up to 15 projects in theaters next year. The fact that these tech companies are saying we're investing in movie theaters is absolutely insane. Right. Like you would have in 2020, you would never have expected it. COVID basically was seen as the end of movie theaters, right? Because all of these streaming companies were putting movies on their streaming platforms and skipping theaters. They were like, we don't, well, we don't need theaters anymore. And then theaters were like, okay, well, what are we good for? We're, we're valueless. We're all going yeah. bankrupt. But apparently that hasn't worked. That hasn't juiced subscriber numbers like they'd hoped. And now all these companies say, okay, maybe we actually need a theatrical release. Maybe there is some value to putting our movies in theaters and not just on streaming platforms, which is kind of a crazy yeah. U-turn because I, it's good for I us. thought it was they were dead two right. years ago. Yeah. No, it's, it is definitely an ironic twist of fate, uh, but good for the consumers. Like We're going to get better movies now. That's true. Um, all right, Neil, uh, before we jump in the next story, we're going to take a quick break. All right, time for our Friday segment, Stock of the Week, Dog of the Week. Before we get into it, I got to kick it to Toby. Oh, this is my favorite <laughs> part of the show. I always forget to do it, but this is not financial advice. We are not registered financial advisors, so everything you hear, take with a grain of salt. 
So good at that. Um, so we do a dog of the week, which is a stock that is not performing well this week. And then that Toby like wants me to explain that it's because the dog of the Dow is the worst performing. That's just a phrase on Wall Street talking about the worst performing stock of the year in the Dow Industrial Dow Jones Industrial Index each year. And then we'll do a stock that is performing well. So I drew the short straw and I'll do dog. Um, but it, I thought we we're going to have one weekend without a banking crisis, Toby. Nope. But I guess I'll have to wait till next Friday because this morning I woke up and saw that Deutsche Bank shares were plummeting as much as 13%. Deutsche Bank is this big, huge, maybe the biggest German lender out there. And it's its stock plunge dragged a bunch of European bank stocks with it. I'm sure the US markets are going to open in the red because of this. So there is another, not banking crisis, but you can tell that the banking jitters have not abated at all. Yeah, it's it's a story. I was saying that we could probably copy and paste like Credit Suisse in for Deutsche Bank. Although I will say one thing that is different about this particular Deutsche Bank kind of getting hammered in the market is that it has it's coming off 10 straight quarters of profit. Yeah. It had a record profits in 2022. So it actually isn't much like Credit Suisse, which has kind of been limping along for the last few quarters. It was by all accounts, a pretty healthy bank, but then you see some of the issues about like long-term bonds is coming to affect it as well. So it's just it shows that even like some of the premier banks are not immune to this. Yeah, you don't want to show any sign of weakness right now. Like right. any little sign that you're not doing okay, and investors are going to pull out. And there's been really confusing guidance this week from Janet Yellen over whether the government will backstop depositors like they did at Signature Bank and Silicon Valley Bank. Mm -hmm. And so people are really confused about. About how much the government is going to step in if banks are going to, you know, keep imploding like they have been. Meanwhile, the Fed raised interest rates, which a lot of people said they shouldn't have because it would create cause even more jitters in the banks. Yeah. So this story will probably develop over the weekend. It's it's way too early to say whether we have another sort of Credit Suisse situations on our hand with Deutsche Bank, but yeah. it definitely is the main thing driving markets today. Mm -hmm. That is our dog of the week. Let's go to stock of the week. Our stock of the week is Synexis. It is a small pharmaceutical company that develops antifungal medicines that has jumped over 74% in the last two days. So, Neil, the key word there is fungal. Okay. The rally was sparked by a CDC report on Monday that said clinical cases of Candida auris, a fungus considered to be an urgent antimicrobacterial resistance threat, rose 209% from 2019 to 2021. Yeah. So, Neil, I'll just go ahead and say it. This is life imitating art. <laughs> Feels like Last of Us has come to life. Yes. Uh, there's this, yeah, it can evade. There, some strains of this can evade uh, medical treatment, which is why they, you know, some investors pile into small biotechs. The one my takeaway is, you, being an investor in a small biotech, it is. You, don't, you can't have a faint heart. Like, these things go up and down based on news like crazy, up 300%, down 400% based yeah. on clinical trials. So, I, I know some people do day trade like biotech stocks, but they're so small. This has a market capitalization of $65 yeah. million. It's smaller than Morning Brew. Yeah. Um, it's just making headlines because you yeah, have the fungus. The can, fungus. Can you imagine if we get a little fungus scare going forward? This, this is a fungus scare. I know, but it's, it's, it's a minor fungus scare, but oh my gosh. Well, they, people should know that it does not really affect healthy people. But it is dangerous for people in the hospital and the immunocompromised. And the CDC, you know, we, it's not really a joke. CDC is, is saying this is an urgent problem and it grew a lot over the past three years. 
Okay, second to final story. Don't want this to end. Because uh, Friday shows are the best. I know, Friday shows are the best. All right, so it seems like there's a massive pop culture effect on the travel decisions of younger people. That's from a new study from American Express, which said that 70% of Gen Z and millennials say they've been inspired to travel to a destination after seeing it on a screen, like a TV or a movie. And that's almost as big as source of inspo as having FOMO of your friends on social media. So this phenomenon, in my opinion, has existed for a while, you know, TV show tourism. But I think it surged uh, really to because of White Lotus, which is this HBO show that's set in the most beautiful locations on Earth, season one. One was in Maui, season two was in Sicily, and Four Seasons Maui, where it was shot, web traffic there during season one spiked 425%. And then in Terramina, the Sicilian town where the season two was set, which we're showing on the uh, screen right now, and I don't want to take my eyes away because it's just so beautiful. You can't like get a, a room at this place this yeah. summer. Yeah, no, it totally makes a ton of sense. Like, of course, beautiful shows and beautiful places is going to drive people when you go there. But yeah, I was just thinking about other instances of this. Uh, my, my girlfriend lives rel relatively close to Carrie Bradshaw's ap uh, apartment from Sex and the City. Yeah. That constantly has people outside of it. There's the Seinfeld Diner in New York as well. Yeah, I used to live there. Oh, you used to live there? It's terrible. Oh, yeah. yeah, it's not great food. No. But yeah, it makes a ton of sense. Uh, another thing I thought was interesting from this same report from Amex is that millennial uh, Gen Z customers were actually Amex's fastest growing customer cohort with 60% of new customers coming in. And it is kind of funny. They were kind of taken aback by this because during the pandemic, when travel kind of dropped off a cliff, they tried to update their cards to have other benefits. And then we come out of the pandemic on the other side a little bit. And now all people want to do is travel. All young people want to do is go to these beautiful places. And so now they're applying for their kind of big travel yeah. cards. Yeah. My, my final piece on this is I wonder if there's a negative effect like when places when TV shows are shot in really crappy places uh, and that people don't opposite. go. So yeah. I was thinking like Mayor of Easttown, do you think where people like, <laughs> I am never going to Delaware County, Pennsylvania. <laughs> and uh, then the wire might have had like a negative tourism effect on Baltimore. We should look into that. That's that's incredible. All right, you can go to the next story. Okay, our final story. It's a it's another kind of travel theme story. Um, before we head into the weekend, I want to talk about a controversy that's been gripping the TSA. So it all started with a tweet that I'll read out from someone named Patrick Neve. This was two weeks ago. Uh, this is the tweet. I tried to take peanut butter through airport security. TSA. Sorry, no liquids, gels, or aerosols. Me. I want you to tell me which of those things you think peanut butter is. So this set the internet on fire. It's viewed over 10 million times because everyone's like, what is peanut butter? Like, is it a liquid? Is it a gel? And so the news that why we're talking about it is the TSA stepped in to help clarify things. They said... TSA tweets like such a, a boomer account, but you may not be nuts about it, but TSA considers your peanut butter a liquid. So Neil, what do you think? What well, form of matter is peanut butter? Well, I did some uh, I did some deep dives on this because I don't trust the TSA with science. <laughs> so a liquid is apparently a fluid that conforms. The definition of a liquid is something that conforms to the shapes that, that it's in. So you pour it into a container and the liquid kind of and, and this piece of matter kind of conforms to the shape. It fills it out, mm -hmm. so you take it in, like out of a mold. And it also retains its constant volume, independent of pressure. And I guess, uh, you know, peanut butter, in a sense, is an extremely viscous liquid. It, yeah. here's, my, here's my 
pushback on that. If I take a scoop of peanut butter with a spoon, the peanut butter does not it, that indentation, that crater, does not go away. Yeah. The the peanut butter does not fill in the so-called container yeah. there. It really depends on the peanut butter, though, because oh, some of these God. organic Super peanut junky. butters, oh, they, those ew. are liquids. And then you have, like, the, the gifs of the world, which absolutely, that, that thing has something unnatural in it because it really holds oh, together. Oh, it definitely has yeah. something unnatural. I think the, this, one of the Skippy brands, you can't call it peanut butter. They call it peanut butter <laughs> spread because it's 51% not peanut butter. Yeah, it's sugary, yeah. Well, that's something to debate with your friends. I want to talk about this for another half hour, but we really have to go. Uh, Hope you all have a great weekend. Watch some basketball. See John Wick 4. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Uh, Please email us with all of your peanut butter thoughts, morningbrewdaily at morningbrew.com or tweet at us uh, at mbdailyshow or on Instagram as well at ambidelishow. Have to give uh, some amazing shout-outs. Why do I say amazing shout-outs? Shout-outs to our amazing crew. Show's producer and editor is Emily Milliron, uh, Montgomery County, Pennsylvania's finest. Show's technical director is Justin Orlando. Our supervising producer is Bryce Belloff. Dan Bauza is our VP of Technical and Production Operations and apparently a one-time top 1500 Magic Arena player in the world. Our hair and makeup watched Avatar and has traveled to Pandora. Devin Emery is our chief content officer. Our show is a production of Morning Brew. Great show today, Neil. Let's run it back on Monday. It's like a four-minute credit. <laughs> <laughs>